Welcome to the October Pensions Podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Dan Bowman, a consultant in the pensions team, and I have with me today Julia Ward, our professional support lawyer. Today, the topics we're going to look at include a pensions ombudsman case, which highlights the importance of not unduly delaying a transfer request. Uh, We'll consider the confirmed increase of the minimum pension age from 55 to 57. Uh, We'll look at a further ombudsman case, which discusses how losses stemming from a breach by an employer of its auto-enrolment obligations are to be calculated, as well as the most recent pensions rectification case, in which our pensions litigation team acted. Firstly, however, we'll consider the advent of pension dashboards. Thanks, Dan. Yes, trustees of occupational pension schemes should be aware that the Pension Schemes Bill 2019-2021, which is currently going through the House of Commons, will introduce new legislative provisions for pension dashboards. Pension dashboards are digital platforms that provide online access for individuals to information about all their pension savings in one place. Most occupational pension schemes are likely to be covered by the new statutory requirements regarding pension dashboards. This means that trustees will be obliged to provide certain pensions information to either a qualifying pensions dashboard service or to the dashboard service established by the Money and Pensions Service. Regulations will set out what specific pensions information has to be provided, but it is likely to cover both general information about the scheme and specific information about the member or beneficiary. For commercial dashboard services, certain requirements, conditions and standards will need to be met for them to become a qualifying pensions dashboard. Taking inspiration from automatic enrolment, the DWP plans to phase in the new pension dashboard duties by way of a staged timeline according to membership size. This process is anticipated to run for three to four years. It is also likely that the DWP will put large DC schemes, for example master trusts, first in the compulsory staging timetable. It may be several more years before a lot of the old data from company and private pension schemes will be visible on dashboards. The Pension Schemes Bill provides that regulations may be made to ensure compliance by trustees in respect of their new obligations. Regulations may give the pensions regulator power to issue compliance notices, third-party compliance notices and penalty notices. They may also specify the maximum amount of the penalty for non-compliance. This is likely to be a cap of £5,000 in the case of an individual or £50,000 in the case of a company. Trustees will need to be aware of their data protection obligations as well. Providing data to the dashboard will constitute processing of scheme members or beneficiaries' personal data. It may be that consent to processing of personal data will need to be given, as well as allowing consent to be withdrawn at any time. If trustees are relying on a ground of lawful processing, this will need to be stated in a privacy notice provided to members. The obligations placed on pension schemes and qualifying pension scheme dashboards should not be read as authorising or requiring the processing of personal data, where this would contravene data protection legislation. In preparation for providing pensions information to pensions dashboards, trustees should start considering whether to obtain member consent in order to provide members' personal data. Trustees should also consider updating their scheme's privacy notice to state the lawful ground on which they are intending to rely for lawful processing. Your usual Stevenson Harbour contact would be happy to help with drafting any member communications and or privacy notices once the final content of the regulations is released. Thanks, Julia. Um, so as mentioned previously, we're now going to look at a ombudsman case that awarded damages for investment loss. Uh, and this case provides a useful reminder not to unduly delay 
uh, a transfer request that trustees might receive. So by way of background, in early 2016, Mr T predicted volatility in the stock markets following the Brexit referendum and so decided to transfer his pension pot from the Tenco Executive Pension Scheme to a self-invested personal pension so that he could invest in the FTSE 100. He emailed the administrator of the Tenco scheme on 24th of March 2016, saying he wanted to complete the transfer before the Brexit referendum, which was taking place on 23rd of June 2016. But, despite several further urgent requests from Mr T, the transfer didn't actually occur until September 2016. So Mr T initially complained to the pensions ombudsman that that he had lost the opportunity to take advantage of the fall in the FTSE 100 following the Brexit vote because of delays caused by the Tenco scheme administrator. The Tenco scheme administrator said it had carried out its duties in a reasonable timescale but offered £100 in compensation for errors in its earlier communications. The ombudsman determined that there had been maladministration and awarded Mr T £2,000 for distress and inconvenience. The Ombudsman did not, however, award damages for the investment loss claimed by Mr T, and that was on the basis that the investment loss was neither measurable nor was the exact nature of Mr T's investment within the reasonable contemplation of the parties. Mr T appealed to the High Court on the grounds that the Ombudsman had not correctly applied the tests of foreseeability and measurability of loss. The High Court upheld the appeal, concluding that the delay in transferring a member's pension, where the purpose of the transfer was for investment opportunities, would result in foreseeable financial loss if there were foreseeable spikes in the stock market at that time. The High Court remitted the case back to the Ombudsman, and the Ombudsman calculated that the investment loss based on the day that the transfer should have taken place, was £43,700. So the Tenco scheme administrator was directed to pay Mr T that £43,700, plus interest at 8% per year from August 2016 to the date of payment. So it's worth noting that this case is unusual in that Mr T could clearly evidence his intention to invest in the stock market at the relevant time. And he could also show that the Tenko scheme administrator was aware of that intention. Notwithstanding this, this case is a useful reminder uh, generally of the legal principles underlying awards of damages and the dangers of delaying when acting on transfer requests. Thanks, Dan. Um, We'll now consider the government's confirmation of an increase in minimum pension age. The minimum pension age um, is the age at which members can draw a pension from their pension scheme, and this will increase from age 55 to age 57 in 2028. Part of the rationale cited for the change has been that this will keep a gap of 10 years between the minimum pension age under private pension schemes and the state pension age. The state pension age is due to increase to age 67 by 2028 for both men and women. It remains unclear at this stage whether any form of transitional protection or phasing in of the change will occur, potentially allowing some individuals to keep a minimum pension age of 55, at least for a limited period post-2028. Alternatively, the change could simply result in a cliff edge change, meaning that on the day preceding implementation, pension benefits could be accessed at 55, but on the implementation day, they could not. 
While the change is some way off, it is something that will, in time, have to be communicated clearly to pension scheme members, not least as to how it might affect their options. This is particularly so given the pensions freedoms that were introduced in 2015, which were supposed to give pension scheme members more flexibility as to how they access their pension savings from minimum pension age. OK, now back to the Ombudsman again, uh, this time to consider a, a case concerning a breach by an employer of its auto enrolment obligations. Uh, in this case, Mr Y was employed by a company called PSDT uh, for a number of months in 2019 and was supposedly enrolled into NEST for auto-enrolment purposes during that period. On Mr Y leaving the employment of PSDT, he discovered that none of his employee contributions that had been deducted from his salary had actually been paid into NEST, and the employer had also not made any employer contributions, apart from one sole contribution made in June 2019. The case was initially looked at by an adjudicator at the Ombudsman, who noted that the contributions which had not been paid in respect of Mr Y's employment now needed to be paid by the employer to NEST. The adjudicator provided that an assumption of 8% of investment growth should be added to the contributions which should have been paid. And the adjudicator also found that Mr Y should receive a £500 maladministration award. On referral to the Ombudsman, the Ombudsman noted that he largely agreed with the adjudicator in terms of putting Mr Y back into the position he should have been in and requiring the employer to make payments of the contributions due to Nest. However, in terms of investment loss, the Ombudsman did not agree with the adjudicator's approach. Instead of applying an assumption of 8% of investment growth, the Ombudsman determined that Nest should be consulted as to how the contributions would have increased in line with investments if they'd been paid into Nest when they were due. As a reference point for investment growth, the one employer contribution that had been made in June 2019 could be looked at to see what funds it had been invested in. On top of that, the maladministration award was increased to £1,000. Now, the Ombudsman's approach here, it does have the outward attraction of being the approach which is likely to put members as closely back into the position that they would have been in had everything been done properly in the first place. But unlike the adjudicator's approach, where a simple assumption of investment growth could be used, the approach suggested by the Ombudsman here could prove more cumbersome from a practical perspective. And this is because it involves a scheme having to look at how the relevant funds performed and then apply an appropriate investment growth rate for each month of missed contributions. For our final topic, we will consider the latest summary judgment pension rectification case of SPS Technologies and Moit, in which our pensions litigation team advised the representative beneficiaries. This case is interesting in that the judgment includes a helpful summary of a number of common issues which can arise in these types of cases. The court endorsed the use of the summary disposal hearing process in appropriate circumstances. This allows for certain applications to proceed on a summary unopposed basis where no, no reasonable grounds of opposition exist. The use of a confidential opinion by the representative beneficiary discussed with the judge in the absence of other parties was also considered. This procedure has been adopted over many years by a number of High Court judges and was described in this case as useful to the court, particularly in situations when the claim was not being opposed. In these circumstances, it was explained that the court valued the candor that was made possible by having a private hearing to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the claimant's evidence and the reasons why the representative beneficiary had chosen not to defend the claim. 
In relation to the rectification application itself, the judgment included a helpful summary of the issues to be considered, including restating the relevant test for granting for rectification, as recently settled in the FSHC Group Holdings case. In particular, the court confirmed that, in relation to the test for rectification, applying common sense and logic was insufficient to enable the court to grant an order for rectification. The court still needed to be provided with convincing proof that an error had occurred. For a common intention mistake to be evidenced, the intention of the parties was to be assessed subjectively whether there was a unilateral transaction or a bilateral transaction. In relation to the substance of the error in this case, deferred members were potentially being favoured over those who remained in active service. This is something that parties invariably argue is illogical and as such must be an error. The court has now judicially endorsed this view, with this type of benefit structure being described as inherently illogical. However, the fact that the benefit structure was illogical was not sufficient evidence for the court to grant rectification. The parties still needed to provide convincing proof on the balance of probabilities and based on the intentions of the parties that an error had been made. Finally, in common with various rectification cases, this case concerned a serial rectification of successive deeds on the basis that the error became embedded in the scheme and was not noticed on two subsequent occasions. The court relied on the case of Industrial Acoustics and Crowhurst in confirming that this is primarily an evidential issue because it is commonly the case that the parties will not have addressed their minds to the particular error in any subsequent deeds. Conduct after the date of the document can constitute evidence of the intention of the person affecting it. This conduct may include matters such as there being no change to the manner in which the pension scheme is administered and scheme booklets published after a change to the pension scheme that reflects the same position as before. So that's all for this month's podcast. Further details on all the topics discussed today can be found in the Stevenson Harwood Pension Snapshot for October and from your usual Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team contact. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative. And don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitcher or on the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm-hmm.